Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our central London service. To hear talks from each of our services, please visit christchurchlondon.org. Luke chapter 8 and verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter... A girl of about 12 was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. And she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. And when they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing around you. But Jesus said, someone has touched me. I know that power has gone out of me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet in the presence of all the people. And she told why she had touched him and how she'd been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead. Do not bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said, Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. And when he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him, except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people stopped wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but she's asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. I wonder whether you give Natalie, please, a very warm welcome as she comes to preach to us this morning. Well, good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing this morning? Um, It's so great to be with you all um, today. Uh, For those that I haven't met before, my name is Natalie, uh, and I lead the central service here with David and Philippa. I must say I'm quite nervous because it's one thing to preach in front of your boss. It's another thing to preach in front of his parents, his family members, etc. So hopefully I do a good job. Uh, First of all, well done for making it here today in this heat. You know, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When it was 30 degrees outside, you came to my baby's dedication. um, You guys are truly great supporters of these families. Um, And a big congratulations to all the families whose children were dedicated today. Um, It's so wonderful to be part of a special occasion such as this. Uh, And my only advice is to enjoy it while it lasts, because guys, the terrible twos are coming, okay? The terrible twos are coming, and they're followed by the frightening threes, the ferocious fours, and of course, the terrifying twenties. Oh, you thought it stopped at 18. How naive of you both. Um, So uh, as David and Philippa shared with us, the Bible tells us that God loves children. He sees children as precious to him. 
And in fact, Jesus said that whoever humbles themselves like a child will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But what exactly did Jesus mean by that? Well, when you think about a baby, they are completely dependent on their parents to do everything for them, aren't they? They are clothed by them, they're fed by them, they get their nappies changed, and they're even carried around from place to place in their arms. But as a child grows, they're taught to do things for themselves. And they must learn how to walk, how to communicate, how to dress and feed themselves. And the idea is that eventually they will become fully independent and rely on their parents less and less. But if we're being honest, in our day and age, it's all about self-reliance. The more that you can show that you're making it out on your own, the more that you're respected by others for your self-sufficiency and your go-getter attitude. Um, did anyone ever watch the TV show Take Me Out back in the day? Anyone? Oh, wow, okay. I thought I'd get more than that, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> so uh, the premise of this show was that um, men would come down this magical lift and present themselves to a court of single women who would demonstrate their interest in them by keeping their lights on for them. No lighty, no like Um And what I always found funny was that, you know, there would be a section where they basically have to talk about themselves or they get a friend who talks about them. And they'll be like, yes, my mate Gary, you know, he's a bit of a wild one. He's always on a bender every Friday and Saturday night. Lights are on, by the way. Lights stay on. But if his mum comes on the show and says, oh, yes, me and Gary like to have brunch every Saturday. <clears throat> suddenly, nobody's interested. <laughs> you know, they, it's much more acceptable for you to go out with someone that is falling out of a club every weekend than someone who has a healthy relationship with their mother. Um, and that's, of course, a result of our culture's narrative that tells us we need to flee from the nest as much as possible. You've got to make it on your own. You've got to figure out the meaning of life by yourself. And you've got to depend on yourself to tackle life's challenges when they arise. Beyonce said it best, me, myself, and I, that's all I've got in the end. Is it though? <laughs> Is that all we have? What happens when we come across a problem that we can't solve on our own, or even those we dare to consult with? What if a situation is so dark and so crushing that we're simply powerless to it? Well, this is where we find ourselves in our passage for today. We meet two people who are in desperate situations. And they've considered turning to Jesus, this traveling preacher from Nazareth that has reportedly done some incredible things and is rumored to be more than just a good teacher. And at this point in the story, Jesus has been going from town to town and he's preaching about God's kingdom and he's healing people and he's rising in popularity because when he arrives back in Galilee, he's welcomed by this massive crowd of people waiting for him. And in that moment, Jesus is met by a man named Jairus, who's a leader of a synagogue. 
which is a Jewish place of worship and study. And Jairus would have been an important man in the Jewish community because of this. As a synagogue leader, he would have had a great deal of religious and political power. Now, the religious leaders, they didn't like Jesus. They felt threatened by him because of his teaching against their hypocrisy and because of his popularity with the people. And they were worried that Jesus would stir this uprising against them. And so they'd begun to think of ways to get rid of him somehow. Therefore, for this synagogue leader to be seen falling at Jesus' feet, it would have been outrageous. How undignified and all for some poor rabbi from Nazareth. But Jairus was willing to throw away his pride and come to Jesus because he was desperate. You see, his only daughter was dying. And no parent ever imagines having to bury their own child. Jairus must have been in agony watching his child suffer. And not only that, But being a religious leader, one would assume that Jairus has tried everything up to this point in his power and knowledge to try and help his daughter. And so therefore, in his desperation, God gives him this spark of faith that leads him to ask Jesus for help. More on that later. So what is Jesus's response to Jairus? He actually shows him compassion. And he's willing to help him. And so he heads with Jairus to his house. And on the way, the crowd is heaving. Imagine being at a music festival or some big event in London. My cousin, um, a couple of weeks back, went to Notting Hill Carnival. And he said, Natalie, you should have seen the crowds. You move, everyone else moves. Like together, like some sort of big sea. Or maybe we go closer to home. The central line on an evening commute. Horrific. (laughs) People surrounded Jesus in this way to the point where they almost crushed him. And on the way, we meet our second character, a woman with the issue of blood. This woman has been bleeding for 12 years. And it would have definitely ruined her life, not just physically, but emotionally and socially. And even now, there is still some stigma around women's menstrual cycles. But back then, it was far more serious because under the Jewish law, a woman was considered religiously unclean whilst on her period. She had to isolate herself from the community until her cycle ended and she carried out ceremonial cleansing. So this woman, having bled continuously for 12 years, would have been an outcast at this point. And the fact that she was even in the crowd was a serious violation of Jewish law. She risked making those around her unclean as they came into contact with her. But again, it's her desperation that leads her to do this. No one has been able to heal her of her condition thus far. And so God again gives her that same spark of faith to turn to Jesus for help. 
And in that same act of faith, the woman reaches out to touch Jesus's cloak. And this is profound for two reasons. First of all, to be in a crowd as an unclean woman was one thing, but to touch a holy man of God was a bigger matter entirely. It was a very severe crime. And secondly, in contrast, the act shows just how remarkable this woman's faith is because she doesn't even need to approach Jesus directly to ask for his help. She simply believes that by touching his cloak, she can be healed. And this is reminiscent of another story where Jesus encounters a Roman centurion in Luke chapter 7. And this centurion said that he didn't believe himself worthy enough to even approach Jesus. He sent friends to go and speak to Jesus and believed that Jesus had the power to heal his servant right from where he was. This woman was likely too ashamed of her condition to approach Jesus directly. But she had enough faith to believe that by touching his clothes, she could be healed. And guess what? She is healed. As soon as the woman touches Jesus, he asks who touched him. Now, this is a pretty silly question from Jesus. A better question would be, well, who's not touching you, Jesus? <laughs> but Jesus is not silly. He knows what's happened. In fact, in his words, he felt power go out from him. What he's actually doing is he's calling this woman to come forward and reveal herself. Now, the woman would have been terrified. She thought that she could just be discreet, but now she has to reveal her presence to Jesus and to the crowd and admit that she violated the law to approach Jesus and touch his cloak. So what would happen next? Would Jesus rebuke her in front of everyone like many people would expect him to? I mean, he would certainly be within his right to do so. No. Instead, Jesus commends her for her faith. He called her out as an example of how an act of faith, even in desperation, is met by a God who's both willing and able to meet us in our needs. And this woman was not healed on how impressive of a person she was. Because if anything, she would have been looked down upon because of her condition. But this woman was healed because her faith was met by Jesus, who had the power and the compassion to help her. Now, meanwhile, Jairus' situation has become even more desperate. He's been told that his only daughter has now died. I mean, surely this has to be the end. And the messenger clearly thinks so because he tells Jairus not to bother Jesus anymore. Have you experienced a time when you felt like your situation was too messy or too complicated for God to bother with? Like he has more important things to concern himself with. Are you tempted to think of your issue as being as good as dead? Well, Jesus' response is not to tell Jairus not to bother him anymore, but it's to reassure him that he's still willing and able to heal his daughter. 
He gives Jairus two instructions, not to be afraid and to believe. And from anyone else, this might sound like a really powerless and patronizing statement. Don't worry, just believe. But from Jesus, he calls Jairus to overcome his fear and trust that he has the power to heal his daughter. Now, when Jesus enters the house, everyone has already begun grieving. And you can't really blame them at this point. But then Jesus tells them to stop wailing because the girl is simply asleep. Yet again, another weird statement from Jesus. Like clearly he can see, like everyone else, that this girl is dead. In fact, I, when I read this verse where it talks about the people begin laughing, I don't think that they start laughing hysterically after crying hysterically, but almost laughing in a way that's disconcerting, like, <laughs> yes, Jesus, yes, she's just asleep. <laughs> um, but it's likely that Jesus said this because he knew what he was going to do next. In fact, he says the same thing about his friend Lazarus in the Gospel of John, chapter 11, before he arrives to miraculously raise him from the dead. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going to wake him up. And Jesus goes on to show his incredible power over death by simply taking the girl's hand and doing just that, calling her to get up. He defeats the world's greatest enemy so effortlessly and the miracle points towards Jesus' impending fate when Soon he will also die and then rise again three days later. So having looked at this story together, what are some of the things that we can take away, that we can reflect upon on our own lives? Well, firstly, both Jairus and the woman are in despairing situations where nothing and no one has been able to help them. And I can imagine them both of them alone, brooding over their circumstances. And then a thought comes to them. Could Jesus help me? But they both have obstacles that stand in their way of approaching Jesus, don't they? For Jairus, it's the risk of his reputation as a synagogue leader and respected member of the religious elite. To them, Jesus was just an enemy that needed to be taken care of. So how could Jairus turn his back on his peers, on years of established religious tradition and trust this traveling preacher? Maybe some of us here can relate to Jairus. Maybe you've been thinking about the claims of the Christian faith, or maybe you don't believe in God at all. But you know, if you had to be honest, there are things in your life that you feel powerless to. And you secretly long for something or maybe someone to help you with them. Or maybe you do believe in Jesus in theory, but you're so caught up in society's rhetoric that real power is found in self-sufficiency and inner strength and not something as archaic and whimsical as organized religion. 
And for the woman, it's years of built up fear and shame because for so long she's lived on the fringes of society and she's been condemned by the law. On the one hand, she didn't have anything to lose as far as respect and reputation was concerned. But what if Jesus couldn't help her? Or what if he refused to help her? Not only would her condition remain, but further shame and ridicule would surely follow as a result. And maybe some of us relate more to this woman instead. Maybe we've been dealing with a situation that has brought a lot of fear and shame with it. Maybe it's a traumatic or an abusive past. Maybe it's a long-term addiction. And we feel trapped. And we can't see a way out that won't lead to exposure and potential judgment. How do these individuals overcome the obstacles before them? Well, God gives them that spark of faith that I mentioned earlier. Imagine you're in the forest and you have two sticks and you're trying to start a fire as you do. <laughs> and you begin to try and rub these two sticks together in order to create enough friction to cause a spark. And when you get that spark, it doesn't take much for it to ignite into a blazing fire. And in the same way, I believe as these two wrestle in frustration and despair, they receive a spark, a small spark of faith to believe in Jesus over and above what is standing in their way. And that spark, it, it grows into action and it gives them the courage and conviction that they need to run to Jesus and ask for help. And the key thing to understand here is that it's God who's the one that gives this faith to us. It's not something that we strive to work harder for. It's not a re reward for the best behaved Christians. No, the Bible tells us that faith is given to us by God as a gift of his grace. That is his unmerited mercy and favor through his son, Jesus Ephesians tells us, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So when we look to Jesus for help, even in our cynicism, even in our disbelief, God, in his amazing grace, he grants us with faith to believe that Jesus can deliver us from our despair. And true faith is always followed by action, where we take steps like Jairus and the woman to come to Jesus. And finally, when Jairus and the woman come to Jesus, he doesn't dismiss their problem. He doesn't ignore them or shame them, but he answers them. He has time for them. He shows them compassion. And then he displays his power in healing the woman and Jairus' daughter. But in doing so, he doesn't just address the obvious despair, but the deeper longing behind it. Starting with the woman, for example, 
Why does Jesus choose to call her forward in front of everyone? And yet later he tells Jairus and his wife not to tell anyone when their daughter is healed. Well, maybe it's because Jesus not only wants to heal her disease, but he wants to restore her from that fear and shame that's held her back all these years. Because she goes from being just a woman to being called daughter. And her faith has not only made her well, but it's promoted her to being a child of God, part of his family. Jesus has restored her dignity and has allowed her to go in peace. And with Jairus, why does Jesus allow his daughter to die before they reach the house? I mean, why didn't he just do what he did with the centurion's servant and simply heal her from where he was? Well, maybe it's because he wants to silence those doubts in Jairus' mind about who he is once and for all. Because Jesus wants Jairus to believe that he really is the Messiah, the Christ. He wants him to see that this is a miracle of God. For only God has the power to raise a person from the dead. He wants Jairus to receive salvation. If I could invite the band back up. So my question to you this morning is, are you in need and are you willing to turn to Jesus for help? The word desperate can often be a dirty word in our society. No one wants to feel like they're desperate. No one wants to feel like they're helpless. We all want to feel like we can do everything. We're so capable. We're so resourceful. But the truth is, even if we just look at ourselves from the inside, we can see that there are things that we are powerless to. We can see mistakes in our past. <laughs> Dramatic pause there. Thank you, Lord. We can see mistakes in our past that can cause us to recognize that we're not perfect and we don't actually have it all together like we want people to think. And this isn't to guilt trip anyone in this room. This is just to be honest. We don't have all the answers. And we can't fix all of the world's problems. So what do we do? There's no coincidence that during the height of the pandemic, increase in Bible sales went up. Increase in church attendance online went up. More people described praying for the first time because they recognized that they were faced with a problem that they were not resourceful enough or capable enough to fix. So I guess that means we are desperate in many ways. So the second question is, are you willing to turn to Jesus? Because Jesus is willing and Jesus is able. We can fall into two camps. We can think that God has the power, but he doesn't care about us. Or God does care, but he just doesn't have the power to do anything about it. But what this story shows us is that God has the power and he has the compassion. So what are you going to do about it?
are you willing to say, God, maybe I don't have that spark of faith. Maybe I'm completely cynical. Maybe I've never thought about asking you for anything before. But if you can hear me right now, and if you're willing and you're able, can you give me that faith to believe that you can turn things around? Even if the only thing you're asking for is to turn yourself around. Even if you think, I've got everything I could possibly need, but inside you know, no, there are things there I'd rather not talk about. Even if you just need the faith for God to do something within your heart this morning, are you willing to turn to Jesus? Because Jesus is willing and able to answer you. So we're just going to have a final song of worship now. Um, and I love the lyrics of this song. It says, in desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished. The end is written. Jesus Christ my living hope. My prayer is that Jesus can be your living hope this morning. Let's stand um, and I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are willing and able to meet us in the most desperate of circumstances that you don't see helplessness or weakness as something to turn your face away from. But just like a child who is often helpless and dependent, you look at us as your child and you reach out and you carry us and you help us and you rescue us when we're in need. And so, Father, I ask, will you give us that spark of faith where we need it to turn to you? Will you overcome the obstacles of cynicism and pride and fear and shame that stand in our way? And will you meet us this morning? Will you be our guide and our saviour? In Jesus' name. Amen.